0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Katie Kitamura, author of the novels Gone to the Forest, The Long Shot, and A Separation. Kitamura has written for The New York Times, The Guardian, Granta, and Bomb. In her novel A Separation, an unknown female narrator recently separated from her husband, goes to Greece to look for him after her mother-in-law realizes he is missing. The search for her missing husband in a foreign land serves as the impetus for the narrator to look deeper into her separation from him and to reinvestigate their relationship. Kitamura is Japanese-American, and her parents and brother moved to California before she was born. Because she was the only one in her family who never lived in Japan, she was less adept at the language than the rest of her family. We began by discussing if this difference in fluency between her and her family led to her desire to write.
1: There's a kind of private language when there's two languages in a household. So, for example, my parents, if they wanted to tell me something uh, in public, but they wanted it to be private, they would speak to me in Japanese. Um, And so maybe the sense of there kind of being multiple levels to any kind of language was important. But I don't know. I don't know that I could say necessarily that it had to do with um, that kind of um, slightly first generation experience that I had. I don't know if that's directly related to my writing.
0: Well, tell me more about A Separation. What was the impetus for the story or was there a question nagging at you that you wanted to explore?
1: The origins of the book are really in a trip that I took to Greece maybe 10 years ago, and it was a really particular time in my life. My dad had been sick with cancer for maybe seven years by that point, and he would die the following year. It was when I was there, I think, that I really accepted that he was not going to get better, which was very difficult for me. And that sense of dread um, of his kind of coming death and a kind of anticipatory grief. I think those are almost the two modes of the book in a lot of ways. Um, And then, of course, it's all set in this landscape in Greece, which is really spectacular and and sublime in the real sense of the word. Um, And so I think that those kind of slightly vague, amorphous feelings that I had set in that landscape had a lot to do with the origins of the book. Um, I mean, I have a slightly more intellectual version of Of where the book, you know, how the book came to be, which is that I was very conscious of the fact that our culture relies so much, the kind of particularly in film and television, on the bodies of missing women. And I think if you look at a lot of television narratives and film narratives and and indeed fictional narratives, um, there's often the kind of body of a woman is often the motor that will start a narrative. And I wanted to invert that and look at what would happen if that absence and that body was male rather than female.
0: Tell me a little bit about the main character for people who haven't read it. She's a little bit distant. She's going through a separation and then her husband disappears in Greece and she ends up going there to to find him at the behest of her mother-in-law. And to me, she seems sort of horn about it but it's it's a great platform for her to look at their relationship
1: in a lot of ways she's a character who is in some kind of state of trauma which is a a big word um to describe the fallout of a relationship um but i think the particular state she's in when we encounter her in the narrative is is one of of not fully being able to process her own emotions um so she has a, a mind that is analytical and observant i think um And what we see again and again in the story is her turning that observation outward to other people. And the own kind of well of her emotions remains relatively unexplored from her. You know, she doesn't care to turn that gaze inward on some level. And I think that uh, is the kind of behavior of somebody who has been hurt in some way by something but is not yet ready to look at exactly what has happened. Um, And towards the end of the book, I think this kind of emotion overtakes her, and she is surprised by that, perhaps. Another thing I was thinking about when I was writing the book was, you know, she, to some extent, moved on when the book begins. She's living with somebody else, um, and her marriage has come to an end, and I think she believes herself to be okay with that. Um, But of course, the emotion is not neatly contained by the closure of that narrative. And that's something that strikes me all the time is that, you know, we create these narratives that have very tidy beginnings and endings. You know, we definitely are are guilty of doing that in fiction. Um, But I think stories are much more contingent and they're ongoing. And emotion in particular, um, the fallout of a situation, it's ongoing. It doesn't end and begin neatly. And often... When you're in the middle of a situation, you can't trace um, when it has begun or ended.
0: One of the things about her that I found really interesting was her detachment. So she went to the hotel where her husband had, was staying and had disappeared from and realized her husband had had an affair with a, a young woman at the desk. And she was, she was very clinical as she talked about it and analyzed it and talked to it to her about it. She was just kind of the wife. Did you have to stop yourself and regulate her emotions as a writer?
1: I knew it was going to be a challenging scene to write because it's a little bit of an absurd situation. Um, She ends up having dinner with a woman who who she believes has had had an affair with her husband. Um, And I mean, the thing I was primarily interested in was to trace the fault lines of her speculation about what may or may not have taken place. That was the most interesting thing for me in writing those two characters was, was less the kind of current of her jealousy and more the current of her imagination and her, how far she could follow the line of that speculation without having to curtail her imagination in some way. I mean, again, one, one thing that a lot of people have asked me about it is how this narrative fits into the, the kind of woman-scorned narrative. And one thing that I definitely was thinking about a lot when I wrote the book is what infidelity means. And I, I mean, I, not simply infidelity, but faithlessness. And I think the character who's been unfaithful in the book on a kind of literal Level is of course the husband, but I think the character who's in a way most guilty of faithlessness of not having faith in the marriage is is actually the narrator. She's the one who quite quickly moves out of the marriage and and is in another relationship, is living with another man. So on, on the one hand, of course, she she arrives to Greece and she finds that her husband has slept with another woman, but of course she's already um, living with somebody else. So uh, the emotion that overtakes her is, I think. A little bit surprising to her because, as I said, she's moved on to another situation.
0: We don't ever learn her
1: name. No, we don't. She's unnamed in the book.
0: Can you talk about that choice?
1: I think so much of writing, you don't necessarily make a conscious decision when you start out writing. You discover things in the process of writing. So I don't think I was conscious until I maybe written as many as 50 pages of the fact that I I hadn't really committed to a name for the character. And then the further I I got into writing writing the book, the more I realized how uncomfortable it made me on some level, on some fundamental level. And she didn't really function for me as a narrator if she had a name. There was something in that that was almost a little bit too specific. It it pinned her down in some way. Um, You know, we also don't know a great deal about her. We don't know what she looks like. We don't necessarily know where she's from. We know that she's not English and that she has a kind of cultural difference um, with her husband and her in-laws, but we don't actually know where she's from. And I I wanted her to be a character who we, we would really come to know through her observation and through the quality of her observation. So in that sense, I wanted the intimacy that we have with her, the kind of proximity to be entirely based on on being able to see the world through her eyes. And for whatever reason, giving her a name felt like that would kind of impinge on that in some way. And I also think it's somehow something about her as a character. I I had a funny experience with my son who's four years old and he came home from school and he said that, you know, so-and-so, a little girl in his class, had called him by, he said, she called me by my name and I I told her to stop. And I I said, well, what's, what's wrong with her calling you by your name? And he said, you know... I want to be the boy with no name. I don't want to have a name. And I really understood that on some level because I think when, you know, it's a kind of old theory, it's, it's literary theory, but I think it's very true. And like when people know your name, they're able to address you. They're able to kind of hail you. You're, you have to, you know, they can call you and you are obliged to stop and turn and acknowledge them. And something about this character, I think she doesn't want that acknowledgement. She doesn't want, it's not, you know, it's not simply recognition. It's also being pinned down in some way, being, kind of put into the system. And she's a character who, for me, is really existing between identities. She's slipping between the cracks of our social structure. She's married, she's a wife, but she's separated from her spouse, but they haven't told anybody, so she's not exactly an ex-wife. So she lives in this kind of interstitial space and and, um, where her identity isn't fixed. And so having a name in some way would fix her identity too precisely for me.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Katie Kitamura, author of the novel A Separation. So basically, when it opens, they'd been separated, I believe it was six months, but she hadn't talked to him in three, and she gets this phone call from the mother-in-law saying she can't find him and that she must go look for him. Mm-hmm. and when she goes over there you're you're deep into her mind and she makes all these what the reader is placed to believe i think are assumptions like she assumes that he had an affair or she talks about his personality and there's a sense that she's that it's conjecture but she's often right obviously it's a revelation of how well she knew this man I'm just wondering if you could give some insight into this quality about her and why you wanted her to have this.
1: I, I think one thing that I, I thought about a lot when I was writing the, the book, and it's a word that comes up in the, in the book a fair amount, is, 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 is imagination and the role of imagination in any relationship. And I think we accept imagination as a kind of basis for empathy um, and for intimacy between two people. But the kind of flip side of that is the excess of imagination, which is really, can lead directly to speculation, which is really the territory that she's operating in for m- much of the book. So a lot of the book is a series of conjectures and speculations that she's making about her husband, about what he's been doing, about where he might be, about who he was. And then, of course, I wanted to capture that kind of feeling with jealousy, where you 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 allow yourself to fantasize that the worst might be possible on some level. But then what, that feeling when your speculation is, is correct is a kind of deadening feeling. Um, you know, you believe it. You believe it might be true. You believe it. You, you spend a lot of energy and you allow yourself to think about all the ways in which this might actually be happening. And then when it's actually true, it's still a shock. And I think that's what she experiences in, in particular with the character Maria um, is she experiences this kind of she allows herself many pages perhaps even of, of imagining this kind of encounter between the two characters and it's all in her imagination and then suddenly it's confirmed and there's a kind of shock to that for her um, and I wanted that kind of emergence from the realm of fantasy and speculation into concrete reality to still have the power to hurt her in some way. Um, So I think that transition from pure imagination into the real world was important for me because it's not simply that she imagines things. The real pain of of the book is, is in that transition.
0: Well, I think it's interesting because you could have made a choice there of her being wrong and her being right. Had she gone and assumed her husband had all these affairs and that mm-hmm. um, she was wrong about this woman in the Hotel Maria, who she was certain she had an affair with, it would have made mm-hmm. her crazy in a way. Like I could see people saying, oh, she's just some crazy woman who doesn't trust her husband. But be- because she was right, it-, it made her deeper to be Right, you might assume that someone's more complicated if they're wrong.
1: One thing that I, that happens in the moment when she it, it's kind of confirmed that Maria did sleep with her husband is that at the same time Maria says that he was wearing a wedding ring, and and she um, and that's actually in a way the the complicating factor in that kind of you know what you know what I refer to as a transition from kind of speculation to real life um, is that that's. That's the part about her husband that she didn't know. So the part about her husband that she correctly speculates, and she was correct, um, you know, about his, his philandering, about the kind of woman he would have liked to have slept with, um, that she's, she's right about. And in a way, it's not, it's, it, it perhaps hurts her, but it's not entirely a What she wasn't aware of or where she, what's more uncertain and more destabilizing for her is the fact that he was wearing their wedding ring, um, which is not a ring that he was, had, you know, that either of them had, had worn during the course of the marriage. And so then that um, in tandem to the realization that he was in fact, you know, um, sleeping around is the kind of complicated complication about understanding what he felt about their marriage. If that ring was simply a prop or if there was something more to it. Um, and so I think the question of how you know somebody, um, the, the, instability is not necessarily around who he was or wasn't sleeping with. It's more a question of what he would have been feeling um, towards the marriage. And it's that is where she's perhaps incorrect.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Katie Kitamura, author of the novel A Separation. I'm wondering about your process of deciding that with the ring, because you're basically using a prop, a physical object in his life that stands in for so much, as you just explained. Did deciding that he was going to, that she saw the wedding ring sort of happen in that unconscious, or I should say subconscious flow of writing a first draft? Or how did that idea come to you?
1: I was quite interested. I mean, a lot of the book has to do with rituals and with performance and this idea of, of how you, you enact your relationship. Um, and the kind of two key performances, in a way, in, in, in many lives, is, is the performance of, of, of the wedding and then the performance at the funeral. And there's a section in the book that, has, um, that is about um, paid professional mourners, paid weepers in particular, who, these women who attend a funeral, um, this tradition is, is um, in Greece and many other cultures where they, women come to the funeral and they weep and they kind of express grief um, on behalf of the bereaved and this idea of performance in a funeral and this kind of act of theatre, the, the kind of corresponding event in the life of the narrator is, is, is of course a wedding and so she, she talks a little bit about on what that performance feels like. And I think because I would I'd thought about, I'd set up this idea of these rituals and these bonds and these promises that you make in a wedding, it felt natural to kind of circle back to that because she is, of course, thinking about the end of her marriage. Um, and I think I like the idea that there's an object that whose meaning is unclear. And that's a kind of, on the one hand, I suppose, it's an old, old trick, if you look at films in particular like Hitchcock often has has an object and its meaning is is indecipherable and it kind of oscillates in the course of the of the film Um, but I I like the idea that she would just at the moment where she thinks I was right he was sleeping with this person I'm definitely right to walk away from this relationship he is exactly what I thought he was this object appears you know not actually in not actually in physical terms, but you know, in, in the in the narration that, that Maria, the woman, is 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 telling her, and then she has to decide what that means. And she can either be completely cynical and think that, that he just puts it on in a kind of way to say, you know, you see I'm married and I'm not making you any promises, you you know exactly what this is. Or she can believe that perhaps his feelings about the end of their their marriage were, were more conflicted. And that kind of that os- those are the kind of two sides of the coin and oscillates around this single object um and then it it brings back her her memories about a little bit about their life together as well so i think using using that object to kind of open up open up another kind of pocket of speculation for her was was definitely useful for me is there anything
0: you want to say about the book that we
1: didn't get into the one one thing that i realized when i finished writing the book is that you know on the surface it's a book that's about marriage and about infidelity and about seduction on some level, but but really, to me, the book is about is about grief, um, and that's at the heart of of the story. Um, it was an interesting realization because you, I, I, I realize how, how to what extent I don't really write in real time. I don't write about my life as it is. I, I write about my life from from much earlier. So the book, in a lot of ways, it, is still caught up with a period in my in my life, which is you know ongoing, but it has a, a, a great deal to do with grieving my father, I think. And that's for me as a fiction writer, it's always interesting to realize belatedly what it's not so much what you're writing about, I suppose, but more where your own biography fits into the material that you've written about. So I guess another example would be that I, I wrote a, a novel, my first first book um was about mixed martial arts. And in a lot of ways when I it was the first piece of fiction I ever wrote and I I thought, you know, I'm going to write about something that is not, you know, I'm not going to write what I know, I'm going to write what I don't know. And I'm going to write about, you know, these, these men who do this, you know, incredibly brutal sport, um, which has nothing to do with me. And somehow that released me to allow me to, to write the, the book. But um, of course, it was about a similar period after writing it, you know, when, when I was, when the book was out in the world that I realized that if, it had a great deal to do with the, with the classical ballet training that I did you know, all through my childhood and into my adolescence, um, and that it had to do with the body and the limitations of the body and the kind of wear and tear on the body and the relationship that, you know, as a young person training quite seriously and something you have with your mentors, all of that found its way into the book in ways that I didn't necessarily understand. So I think in this case it was interesting to kind of clock out to figure out what my kind of underpinning preoccupations are and how they find their way into a into piece of fiction.
0: A lot of people say, write what you know, and some people are like, don't listen. But in the end, I think what you're writing, what you know is about emotional truth, and it might come out about a breakup with a boyfriend, but it the story itself is about a kidnapping. I mean, that's kind of where I love that a, a writer's own sensibility and experiences in the world do become inseparable from their book and that it, it is a piece of art that only you can make and everything in your life has added up to making it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, I, I certainly as a kind of younger writer, the idea of, of you know, I, I, I preferred fiction over nonfiction because I, I, I thought I wasn't comfortable with memoir or I'm um, certainly confessional. Um as, as a form, I wasn't comfortable writing about myself. And then at a certain point, as a, as a fiction writer, you realize that all you're doing is writing about yourself and that you're all over your book. And I can see it in my friends' books as well. I can see how elements of their character are in their fiction. But it's it's not in the... There's very rarely a kind of neat one-to-one where you say the central character is completely like the author. It, it's, 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 it's much more pervasive. It's all over... It's, it's, it's in the really the bones of the book. So it, it's not that it's people are writing their life story. It, it finds its way out in much more complicated ways, um, but that are in, in a lot of ways much more fundamental.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Katie Kitamura, author of the novel A Separation. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or inspired you as a writer?
1: Sure. Um, the, the passage I picked was um, from Javier Marias, the Spanish writer. Um, his novel, Tomorrow in the Battle, Think on Me. It's just the first few lines of the, of the book, which is one of my favorite openings of, of a novel, I think, ever. Um, so it begins... No one ever expects that they might someday find themselves with a dead woman in their arms, a woman whose face they will never see again, but whose name they will remember. No one ever expects anybody to die at the least opportune of moments, even though this happens all the time, nor does it ever occur to us that someone entirely unforeseen might die beside us. The facts or the circumstance of a death are often concealed. It is common for both the living and the dying assuming that they have time to realize they are dying. To feel embarrassed by the form and appearance of that death, embarrassed, too, by its cause. Seafood poisoning, a cigarette lit as a person is drifting off to sleep, and that sets fire to the sheet, or worse, to a woolen blanket. A slip in the shower, the back of the head, the bathroom door locked. A lightning bolt that splits in two, a tree planted in a broad avenue, a tree which, as it falls, crushes or slices off the head of a passerby, possibly a foreigner. Dying in your socks, or at the barber's, still wearing a voluminous smock, or in a whorehouse, or at the dentist. Or eating fish and getting a bone stuck in your throat, choking to death like a child, whose mother isn't there to save him by sticking a finger down his throat. Or dying in the middle of shaving, with one cheek still covered in foam, half-shaven for all eternity, unless someone notices and finishes his job off out of aesthetic pity. Not to mention life's most ignoble, hidden moments, that people seldom mention once they are out of adolescence, simply because they no longer have an excuse to do so. Although, of course, there are always those who insist on making jokes about them, never very funny jokes. What a terrible way to die, people say, about certain deaths. What a ridiculous way to die, people say, amidst loud laughter. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you chose this? I think it's a wonderful opening that doesn't actually... It, it, set, it sets up a very strong kind of narrative scene, but then it, it kind of pulls away from it. So the more conventional way of telling the story would be no one ever expects that they might someday find themselves with a dead woman in their arm, a woman whose face they will never see again, but whose name they will remember. But that happened to me and I was sitting here and this happened. And it, But instead he kind of pulls away from that and he goes into a very long digression, um, which is in a way one of the things that he's incredibly good at as a writer. He, um, he uses digression in a way that's really interesting, and I think the best example of that in his work is in the trilogy *Your Face Tomorrow*, which is a kind of—I mean, it must be over a thousand pages. But he, um, there, he—he's writing about the Spanish Civil War, and he's writing about censorship, and he's writing about things that cannot be said. And it becomes very clear that this mode of digression, this mode of circling around something, of finding two or three ways to. To say something that seems very similar but is in fact subtly different um, has a great, has has this kind of political resonance. It has to do with a way of a, a form of speech, a form of thinking, a form of language that developed um, develops um, under 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 duress in a way. So that that I, I just like it because to me it's an example of 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 the writing of somebody who I think is exceptional in marrying both style and content.
0: Can you read something you wrote, uh, maybe it was tricky or changed from the first draft or something that you like how it turned out?
1: Sure. Yeah, I can read just a single paragraph. Um, and, and basically, af- after the narrator's husband is, is, found, is found dead, there's a kind of a, a slight uh, it's not a breakdown in the narrative, but it becomes temporally trickier. It, um, she the, her, it's, it's very linear and very pretty much straight up until. That moment, and then it it starts to really fold in on itself a little bit um so in in the chapter that's maybe two chapters after the discovery of the body, there's just a paragraph where um, I think in this paragraph it has to refer to two or three different um, moments, which was tricky to get to get right I'm not actually even sure if I did, but i 'll read the, read the paragraph anyway um so she's she's talking about at, at one point she goes into um the husband's computer, and, and she talks a little bit about the strangeness and the kind of voyeuristic quality of that, of, of how she feels that it's a kind of infringement on his privacy, but she she has to go into his computer, this is after he's died, in order to try to find the manuscript that his agent and his editor believe he's finished. Um, but then she starts off by talking about a, a newspaper that she finds, the London Review Books, not a newspaper, a periodical, that she finds in his room only a few few days after he's died Um, and then she circles back to talk about the arrival of her mother-in-law and then she goes back again to talk about looking at the body and so that the paragraph has to refer to those four different um, time periods so it begins but I only went into his computer weeks months later whereas the June issue of the London Review of Books I saw perhaps only a few days after his death or rather after I was informed of his death. By that point, Isabella had arrived. I had called her from the police station after I had seen Christopher's body laid out on a steel table, the entire thing covered with a sheet, including the face. This unnerved me yet further, although there was no reason why I should have expected the body to be arranged any differently. For the sheet to be drawn up to the shoulders, for example, as if he were lying in bed. He looked as if he were sleeping. He did not look as if he were sleeping. His face, when the police officer drew the sheet back, was fixed in the same expression as I had seen in the photographs. Again, a trick of the imagination, which is always slow and stupid in such sh- situations. I had thought his face would be different, look different, but it was exactly as in the photographs, the eyes askew, the mouth propped open. And yet the wound at, his back, at the back of his head, with its black crust of blood, was larger and more open than I expected. It seemed to be ongoing, as if it were continuing to cause distress, as if he were still experiencing pain right there in front of me. Yeah, so that, that was, it, I mean, in a lot of ways, that paragraph, the first paragraph, is a kind of bridge between two sections. There's a longer section where she's, she's um, talking about the computer and the, the London Review of Books, but then it has to act as a pivot to go back into the scene when she actually um, sees the body of, of her husband. Where do you write? Um, I write in my, in my bedroom, I've always written in my bedroom. Um, I've never been able to really work anywhere else. Um, so, so I have a desk that's set up in our bedroom and and that's where I always write. Um, you know, my husband, who's also a writer, usually prefers to work in an office, but both of us like to like to work at home. So yeah, I, I work at a desk that's in my room and I've done that I think since I started writing fiction.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Um, well, it's I have two children, so basically, uh, the minute I open the door, and I'm with my children, you know, I'm I'm very aware of, away from writing. Um, I don't really need to do do very much. I think it's um it's the the trick is less in getting away from the writing and more in getting to the writing these days.
0: And who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Um, my husband. He's he's uh, my first reader. I mean, we have a it's not a rule and and it's not even something that we ever discussed but we both usually share our novels only after we've finished a first draft because i think you you get one clean read from somebody usually i think if you if you're showing somebody pages as you go along it's very hard to read revisions without you know recollecting recollecting how 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 the draft might have changed or you know, of, of comparing it and saying it, it's definitely better. And instead, what you just want is a clean read. And you really, I think you only get one of them. I mean, I can ask him to read, you know, a dozen times if I need to, but I think it's very important when you choose to share for the first time.
0: And how have you dealt with rejection?
1: You know, I think not that well. <laughs> and, I, and I know there's a lot of, um, you know, I, think, I know a lot of kind of advice to, to writers who are starting out is to kind of get used to the rejection because there's a lot of it and, and, and you know, you have to carry on and, and certainly that's true. but I, I also think that as writers you're not necessarily um, you know, a thick skin is not necessarily the best thing for a writer. And I think I think the rejection, you have to feel it as you, as you feel it and then you do have to carry on and you have to continue writing and you can't let it really set you off course and you certainly can't let it change. Um, the direction you want to move in your writing but I think um, the idea that you have to just brush yourself off and and not let yourself kind of wallow in it is is certainly not something I've ever been able to do I should add though I don't really write short stories um, so I, I I write a novel and then and then it goes out you know once every two or three years and then I, and then I deal with the feedback I don't have the difficulty of sending out stories and and, and dealing with waves of, of you know, either acceptance or rejection or waves of feedback at any rate um, multiple times a year. So I think that's a, that is a slightly different thing.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: My favorite word at the moment is a word my son made up, which is, you know, he's obsessed with Lego right now and he loves the instruction books, um, the kind of, you know, the pamphlets that tell you how to assemble the Lego. Um, but he calls them in constructions. Which I love as a word, and I love to use it um, because you know he 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 knows, of course, that Legos are construction sets, and then so they're the in constructions, and so I think that's a word that makes me smile every time I hear it.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing, produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Katie Kitamura, author of the novel A Separation. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.